following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our scripture text this evening is Psalm 16, if you turn with me, Psalm 16, where we're continuing a four-week study these Sunday evenings in Messianic Psalms, Psalms that are particularly Psalms that prophesy about the Messiah and point ahead to Him. Psalm 16 is one of those Psalms. It may not be a Psalm that you usually think of quite in those terms, but we want to look at it in the time that we have here. Psalm 16, here as I read God's word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. In Sir Walter Scott's famous novel, Ivanhoe, the rightful heir to the throne Richard the Lionheart, returns to England from the Holy Land in disguise. He comes back to England simply as the Black Knight, and he does not reveal his true identity until the time is right. And when, near the end of the book, he chooses to make himself known, it is a moment of dread for his enemies and, of course, of joy for his loyal subjects. Here in Psalm 16, we read of a faithful servant who exhibits single-minded devotion to God and who in turn receives an amazing inheritance. Certainly, David, the writer of the psalm, was speaking of his own experience, but the full reality of this messianic prophecy pointed to another, of course, to Jesus Christ, the true and rightful heir. And we'd like to look at this psalm in two parts. The first is, the first half, verses 1 to 6, a description of the rightful heir, this rightful heir with single-minded devotion to God in all these different areas of life that we read about in verses 1 to 6. Let us consider the rightful heir and this description. In verse 1, we see that his security is in God. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
He looks to God for his safety. The true heir finds his security in God alone. It is characteristic of him. In verse 2, we see that the true heir also looks to God for his good, for his welfare. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Literally, my good, my welfare is not beyond thee or in addition to thee. Reminds us of Psalm 73, verse 25, where the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. The true heir saw his life and his welfare, his good, bound up in his God and in his will. And then we see in verse 3 this picture of his associates. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David here speaking that he is drawn to men of holiness. The loyal ones or the godly ones, literally the holy ones. In the Old Testament, sometimes that term is referred, used to refer to heavenly being, to angelic beings. But here, they are, the, they are the holy ones. They are the saints in the land. In other words, on the earth. They are human beings. The true heir has his heart set on the people of God. And his delight and his love is upon them. And then we see in verse 4, his worship. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He sees others running after other gods. And probably the verse harkens back to Genesis, where Eve is told that there will be a multiplying of sorrows and childbirth and so forth. And the true heir we see here repudiates all other gods. He won't pour out their drink offerings or take up their names on his lips. So his worship is right and single-minded and pure. And then we see his ambitions in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And here are all these terms that are Old Testament terms referring to inheritance, boundaries of the land, the idea of my cup, and you hold my lot. The idea of God himself as this holy one's inheritance, the faithful servant inheritance is God. It was a, it was a thought, it was a, a way of thinking that was very central in King David's thoughts. We see this in 1 Samuel 26, the second time David spared King Saul's life. You remember the story, David was fleeing for his life for years from King Saul, who was very jealous of him. And in this second time that he spared King Saul's life, he enters the camp at night with a few friends and takes various things from Saul's bedside, from the side of where he slept. And then he cries out from a hill to Saul. And David essentially asks King Saul, why are you pursuing me? What am I guilty of? If men have incited you against me, may they be cursed, he says. And then in verse 19 of the text, he says, They have now driven me from my share 
in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. An interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? They've driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance, and they've said, go serve other gods. The psalmist is saying the opposite of that here. David felt very strongly the disinheritance, in a sense, that he experienced in fleeing from Saul and how important that was in that culture. And David, expressing here, speaks of a a very higher view of our true inheritance. He has a beautiful inheritance. David would have remembered that the Old Testament priests had no block of of territory to call their own. But they were given the assurance in Numbers 18 that the Lord says to them, I am your portion and your inheritance. Maybe the priests at times felt left out. Everyone else was given land in a society that land meant almost everything. But the Lord says, I am your portion. I am your inheritance. No tribe could boast of anything as pleasant as that or as blessed as that. And so David is expressing a radically different scale of human values. And the Messiah, of course, fulfills all of this. His assigned portion is God himself. Reminds us of Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ. Or Philippians 3.8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so, the true heir is described in 2 Corinthians 6 as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. It's true for Jesus Christ, and he gives that to his own as well. The heir, the true heir, would appear to have no inheritance, but would be trusting the Lord to assign him his pleasant and beautiful inheritance. And so Jesus was the heir, unapparent, we might say, born in a borrowed stable. We all know the story. Taken to Egypt to avoid the murderous attempts of a jealous puppet king. Growing up in a backwater town as a lowly peasant, as part of an occupied and downtrodden people group. Ministering then, finally, in his public ministry to wayward souls for three years without a place to lay his head. And he says, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Having nothing of this world's goods and yet being the true owner and the Lord of all. Jesus Christ endured, we might say, earthly disinheritance in order to be exalted as the true and rightful heir on behalf of those for whom he came to save. And then the second half of this psalm describes the lasting inheritance he received and which he freely gives to those who trust in him. And so we would call this second point the inheritance he and we receive. Look at the particular blessings of this delightful inheritance, beginning in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. And so we have the blessing of guidance. The kind of guidance described here is the kind of heart-searching guidance that may drive away sleep, in a sense. If you look down to Psalm 17, verse 3, the first part of that verse 
There the psalmist says, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night. This idea that God's guidance sometimes comes to us in the middle of the night. We can't rest too much on on dreams or thoughts we might have in the middle of the night. But this idea of God guiding our thinking, which is to be distinguished merely from a restlessness of a worry and anxious night's sleep. Instead, it's receiving God's counsel as we apply our hearts and minds to God's word and we're meditating on his word and thinking about him and thinking about his guidance for us. And sometimes that takes place in the quiet of the middle of the night or at odd times. We think of Jesus spending whole nights in prayer, and we think of him in Luke 6, spending the night in prayer in preparation as he reflects on choosing the 12 who will, he will appoint as apostles, clearly seeking his Father's guidance. And so one of the great blessings of the inheritance we have of our union with Jesus Christ is that we enjoy in this life the guidance of God. Stop and think about that. God guides his people. That's his promise for us. And that's true even when the way is very dark or very hard, and it may seem as if God has lifted his fatherly hand and care upon us. And that was certainly true for the true heir, Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, and especially think of him going to the cross Think of him wrestling in the garden and preparing to go to the cross. It was a lonely and a costly way, and he was misunderstood and reviled by the world, and the the crowds were hostile to him in that sense. But his father was leading him all the way. He was receiving guidance from the father. And likewise, we, his people, are always led and cared for by the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's part of the inheritance we receive in Christ. But also we see stability as a blessing of this inheritance in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I will not be moved, the psalmist says. And this wasn't an empty boast. It's not like a football player before the big playoff game meeting with the press and confidently boasting, we are going to win this game. I guarantee it to you. You know, you hear those interviews. I guess they're supposed to say that. This wasn't empty bravado, but it was a sure and certain stability flowing out of an absolute confidence in the Lord. Because he is at my right hand, because he is always before me, I will not be shaken. It's interesting, Peter quotes from these verses of the psalm on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, speaking of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, of course. And we realize that only the Messiah, Jesus Christ, ultimately fulfills this description. I have set the Lord always before me. We can't say that we have done that or even do that yet in our Christian life and walk, but Jesus Christ always did perfectly fulfilling the law of God. And Jesus was not moved and not shaken. That speaks of the ultimate assurance of God's favor and God's love and God's care. And Jesus was not shaken, and because we are in him, the truth is that we are not shaken ultimately as well. We are not shaken eternally 
because we have passed from condemnation into life because of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, we say. Praise be to God that that is so. And we also know the blessing of increasing spiritual stability in this life, that we are not tossed to and fro, as Paul says in Ephesians, by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine and cunning and craftiness of men. We know and we experience more and more the reality of having the Lord set before us, having our eyes on the Lord, and of having our trust and hope in Him. And so nothing, no matter how deep the grief and the pain and the sorrow and the hardship that there might be in this life, nothing is able ultimately to shake us, for we are secure in Jesus Christ part of the blessing of our inheritance in him. And then at the end of the psalm, we see the greatest and culminating culminating blessings of our inheritance. In verses 9, 10, and 11, we see in verses 9 and 10, resurrection. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a familiar one, a familiar blessing again, quoted in the book of Acts twice as it applies to Christ. And so this, Paul says, does not specifically speak of David because his body saw decay. It spoke and pointed to the Messiah. And then beyond resurrection power, verse 11, this theme of eternal joy in God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. One commentator says this verse is unsurpassed for the beauty of the prospect it opens up in words of the utmost simplicity. In other words, very simple words and yet beautiful description of the Christian's ultimate eternal joy in God given through Christ. Reminds me of Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. The idea is the path of the righteous leads without a break into God's presence. And that's only true for us because Jesus Christ has given that inheritance at great cost. And so there is full satisfaction in both who God is, and in what he gives. Look at the end of verse, chapter of Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. There's that same theme of joy in God. And this is really the pinnacle. This is the very highest point of the delightful inheritance that is purchased by Jesus Christ, received by Jesus Christ, and then freely given to everyone who trusts in him. How might we prayerfully read and apply these two parts of the psalm? Think about what Jesus did. Think about how you might pray and think about this psalm before God. Jesus, this is what you did. My Lord, this is how you perfectly lived. You took refuge in God. You fully satisfied the Father in every way in keeping the law and becoming obedient unto death in always pleasing the Father. Your food was to do the will 
of your Father. You delighted in pouring out your life for the saints, Lord. You consistently refused to bow down in any way to a false god. You looked to the Lord for his, your only inheritance. You were made poor, but through your poverty, we were made rich. And Jesus, this is the inheritance you accomplished and received. And so, Lord, help me to know and to believe by faith that what you have, you have also freely given to me. Do you ever struggle with doubts about the blessing that God gives you in Christ, that you are a fellow heir of Jesus Christ? You have the imputed righteousness of Christ. You have this promise of a delightful inheritance that you have already begun experiencing in this life because every Christian has been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise that looks ahead to that final day and the full inheritance, and we take that by faith and we stand in that in Christ. And then we could also think about this psalm applying to how we walk with Christ day by day. How do I need to take refuge in you, verse 1, and not in lesser things? What are you finding refuge in this week, this month? What are the kinds of things you tend to delight in instead of the Lord? Or verse 2, how can I more and more learn to find you as my ultimate welfare, my highest good in my life? And I need to be praying for that. Or verse 3, how can I delight more in your people and in the fellowship of the saints? Or verse 4, how am I tempted to run after other gods, which only brings sorrow in my life? Or verses 5 and 6, how can I cultivate a true contentment with what God has sovereignly assigned me in my life? And even in the church, you can look around And you can see others you might compare your life to and say, what about this person, Lord? You seem to have given him or her these blessings that I don't have. And God says, you have a beautiful inheritance in me. We often, too often, are like Peter, who when Jesus in John 21 is recommissioning him, says he points to John and says, well, what about this man? And Jesus says, don't worry about John. You leave him to me. You follow me. And we need to hear that message as well. And so, we need to ask ourselves, have have we come to see Jesus Christ as the only one who can give us the blessing of the true inheritance, which is God himself? This is another way of asking, have you truly come to give your life to Jesus Christ, who died to save us from our sins and to bring us into fellowship with God himself? And we also need to ask ourselves, Christian, if you have come to Christ, are you standing in that delightful inheritance? Does it mean that life is easy, that there's no suffering, but it means you're more and more seeing life from an eternal perspective and valuing what is most valuable and trusting in your Father's will and in His loving care for you. There's another famous inheritance story that I like that involves hobbits. I think the last series of the movies about hobbits is coming out this month. Frodo inherits Bilbo's special ring. It's an inheritance that's worth more than everything else Bilbo gives him. And no one else knows about this special inheritance, this ring. 
Yet the ring for Frodo only leads him on a pathway of sacrifice and suffering for the good of others. Well, that's an interesting story. But for you and for me, the true story, the real story, is the sacrifice that has already been made by one who made that sacrifice on our behalf, Jesus Christ. And now we live in the blessing of what he has done. And so we say, thanks be to God for the great inheritance we have received through the true heir, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, surely we have a delightful inheritance as we think of the gospel story of Jesus coming in lowliness, in humility, in suffering, in service, all the way to the point of dying on a cross. We are amazed. We pray that you would fill our minds with that reality, with that truth, that we would live close to the cross every day and drink in deeply of the sufficiency that Jesus Christ gives us in this full inheritance that we have entered into now and one day we will see face to face. Thank you for Jesus, our elder brother, our Savior, the true heir, and thank you for making us co-heirs with him. In his name we pray. Amen.